truly thankful for our band and for wonderful singers this morning. And uh, if you've got your copy of God's Word, if you'll open up to Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, we're going to talk about having a vision for revival, a vision for revival. We've been going through our series on why revival tarries, and so now we're going to focus in on what it means to have a vision for revival. And I wonder, can you see it? Can you see it? And you think about this, there's several times in scriptures there were things that people obviously could not see. There were several things that people wondered if it could really happen. There was one in Ezekiel chapter 37 where Ezekiel was taken into a field of bones. And he said, can these dry bones live? I mean, that was the question. And of course, Ezekiel was uncertain of what God was trying to do or what God was representing there. And sure enough, God told him to speak to those bones, and they came back together, and God placed skin upon them, and then God breathed breath into them, and God was able to make the dry bones rise again. I wonder, can we see it? Can we see nations repenting, nations rising and returning to where they once were, where they need to be today? I wonder if Jonah, that's exactly why he fled, if he ran far away. Why? Because he could see that the nation of Nineveh was going to repent. They were going to return. They were going to get right. Can we see the gospel spreading? You see, oftentimes we sit back and we see everything that's going on in today's day and age. We see the turmoil and we see the destruction and we see the problems and we wonder, is God going to show up? Is God going to do something great during these times? It made me think of a passage in the book of Mark chapter 10 in verse 51, and Jesus is speaking to a blind man. He said, Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? And the blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. My prayer today is that we will receive the sight that God is intending for us to see. That we can see exactly what God is doing in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this turmoil, in the midst of all these problems, that we can see what God is doing. A lot of people are questioning, a lot of people are wondering, you know, people are having to stay at home, they're being quarantined, people can't go to their jobs, they're, they're afraid of how they're going to make payments and how they're going to do things in life. And there are a lot of us that are fearful, a lot of us that are concerned, a lot of us that are worried, and a lot of people are wondering why God is allowing this to happen. But I'll tell you, there are a lot of great things that I've seen coming out of this. I see families being united together, being made to spend time with one another. I see families becoming the units that God intended them to be, where God is being exalted and the home is becoming what it needs to be for fathers stepping up and being leaders. Can you see it? Can you see God using this event? Can you see what it's going to be like when we finally get to come back into church? When we finally get to join back together, and I've seen several of you make a post, and I've seen this, uh, what's going to happen when churches open back up, and you see Chris Farley running down an aisle and high-fiving people and chest bumping them and hugging them and picking them up and grabbing them. And yeah, I can see that happening in church. Why? Because we'll be excited to be able to come back together. Man, have we missed it? Have we really missed it? I see the prodigals returning. I see people getting on their faces before God who have not gotten on their faces before God because they're desperate. Sometimes it takes desperate measures to bring us back to where we need to be. So can you see it? Can you see God at work, even in the midst of this chaos, even in the midst of this turmoil, even in the midst of these problems, can you see God working? If not, then maybe you need to pray for God to open 
your blinded eyes. This morning, we're going to look at three places our focus must be to see revival. The first place our focus needs to be to see revival is we need to have our focus upward. Look with me in Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, and I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And I love this image here when we think about God. He says, it was in the year that King Uzziah died. He said, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. One thing we need to understand, even today, even in the midst of the chaos, even in the midst of the problems, God is still on the throne. He is still there. He is still high and lifted up. Whether you want to lift him up or not, that's okay. He is lifted up. There are angels surrounding him, worshiping him, glorifying his name. I promise you, if we as humans stop praising him, the rocks will cry out and glorify him. When we think about this, it says he is on the throne. No matter what's going on, no matter what we're faced with, God is still in control. Nothing is outside of him. Nothing is beyond him. Nothing is beyond his comprehension. We understand that God is seated on the throne. Isaiah was taken into the very throne room of God. Could you imagine what that's going to be? The truth is, every one of us one day will stand in the presence of God. Every one of us will face judgment. Every one of us will stand before a throne with God seated there. What is it going to be like for you? Isaiah faced this throne and he saw God high and lifted up. And it says, and the train of his robe, his train filled the temple. In other words, there was no place for anybody to stand. No place for anybody to be. Because when God comes in the house, he clears the room. But in verse 2, listen to these that were there. It says, and above it stood seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. Now it's interesting. The seraphims are a form of angels. We know there are seraphims mentioned in the Bible. There are cherubims. There's archangels. The seraphims are a unique breed. They had four faces. They had the body of a lion and they had six wings. And here they stood in the presence of God, and it tells us what they did with their wings. With two, it said they covered their faces. In other words, they recognized the Holy One that they were standing before, and they humbled themselves by covering their faces. They could not look at the beauty and array of God Almighty. In other words, it would be like trying to stare at the sun. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. Staring at the sun, eventually you start to see spots, and you can't see anything but spots all over. These were not even trying to attempt to look at him. Why? Because of his holiness and his glory. So with two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. In other words, they covered themselves completely so that the holiness of God could not break through their wings. The holiness of God could not be seen just but a a moment. They covered themselves to humble themselves. And with two, they did fly. But I love what they said in verse 3. It says, And one cried unto another and said, Holy Holy, holy. Three times. Why? A lot of people ask the question, why did they decry it three times? A lot of people say, well, it's because of the Trinity. They were decrying that 
God our Father was holy, God the Son was holy, and God the Holy Spirit was holy. But the truth is, is the three-form cry meant perfection, that God was perfect in his holiness. No sin, no taint, no blemish. He was utterly and completely blameless, flawless, sinless. He was holy. Holy, holy, holy. In fact, in Revelation 4 and verse 8, it says that they cry out, holy, holy, holy unto God. They continuously cry out to him. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah loves to call him the holy one of Israel. In fact, in the book of Psalms, it says we ought to praise him according to his holiness. In Exodus 26, it was pretty interesting when Moses was declared to make a tabernacle. In other words, to make a place where God would be worshipped. Now, you got to think about this. Before Moses ever went up on a mountain, he was told to tell the people to stay away from the mountain. Don't even come to the foot of the mountain. Don't try to get up in the mountain. Don't try to come into the very presence of God. Why? Because they would die. And so when Moses went up, God sent him back down and said, I want you to go back and tell the people, don't even attempt to break through. Don't even attempt to try to come up. Moses said, I've already told him. He said, I want you to go back and tell them again. And I guess God understands that we don't listen the first time. So he goes back down and he tells them, don't come up. Well, Moses is given instructions to build this tabernacle. And inside this tabernacle, there would be a place called the holy place. And this would be where the priests would come in and they would make sacrifices and they would do all the things that needed to be done day after day after day to pay for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. But then there was another place that was set back in the back of the temple called the Holy of Holies. This was a place that was reserved for the high priest to come one time a year. One time a year. And before he could enter into the Holy of Holies, he would go to the altar of incense that was just before the veil. And he would burn the incense so that the smoke would go in there so that he could walk into the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. The presence of God would be. And it would fill that place with the smoke. And he would walk in and he would make the sacrifice and then he would come right back out. Why? Because the holiness of God was represented in that place. When the temple was built, Solomon made a temple. He also built a holy place and the holy of holies. Now there was a king who made a mistake. His name was Uzziah that we heard earlier. Uzziah went into the temple. He wanted to burn incense. And the priest stopped him. They wouldn't allow him to come in there because it wasn't his place to come in there. God turned him away. God ended up causing leprosy to come upon him. And they rushed him out. Holy is God. But it says this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. I love that phraseology there, the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of the hosts of angels. It's an amazing thing when you think about that God created all and God is above all. It says the whole earth is full of his glory. When we think about this, what does it tell us? What should we be asking ourselves? Well, I think Psalmist had it right in Psalm 24 and verse 3. He says, Who shall ascend to the holy hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Who will stand? Who will ascend into the holy hill of God? Who will be able to come into his presence? Those who have been forgiven. Those who have been cleansed. Those who have been changed. What does this mean for us? When we look upward, we see God. We see 
his holiness. We see his gloriousness. It says in verse 4, And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. I know that when God answered a prayer in the book of Acts, he shook the entire place. We know that when God arose from the dead, he shook the entire world. In this place, when the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the vision was shaken and the house was filled with smoke. We need to understand the holiness of God. Second place our focus must be to see revival is we need to focus inward. Look in verse 5. It says, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Isaiah begins to focus inward when he simply says this, Woe is me. The word woe is a powerful word. It means to take back and understand that there is something devastating about to happen. What did he say? He says, woe is me, for I am undone. In other words, the word there literally means I'm destroyed. As they understood to go into the presence of God in his unholy form, in his unforgiven form, in himself, Isaiah understood that death was what should have occurred. Death is what should have taken place. In fact, when Manoah and his wife had stepped into the presence of God, they too believed that they would die. Jacob also thought the same thing. Woe is me, for I'm undone. I am destroyed. He understood that he would not be able to live through this, or so he thought. And he recognized his unholiness. He said, because I'm a man of unclean lips. That's interesting that he uses that phraseology. We know in the book of Exodus that Moses used a different phraseology when he said, I am of uncircumcised lips. In other words, that I can't speak well. But Isaiah here uses the term unclean lips. In other words, he understood that there were times where he had used his mouth to proclaim things that should have never been proclaimed. He had used his lips to say things that should have never been said. And not only does he claim it for himself, he says, but I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He understood how sinful he was. And I think if we would just understand just how sinful we are, it might change the way we worship. In the book of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, I believe if we would do this from time to time, we might see God change our lives. Here the psalmist simply says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of of everlasting. I wonder how many of us would invite God in to search deep. Have you ever thought about that if, if you invited somebody into your home? Could you imagine inviting somebody into your home and saying, you have complete access to my home. If you want to, you can go through every closet in this house. Could you imagine because I'm sure everybody has one of those closets where it's piled high from floor to ceiling and you open it up and everything falls out. You know, you just try to keep that hidden when guests come over. But could you imagine having somebody in your house and saying, you have complete access, you can look at every single one of my closets. In fact, you can go through my dresser 
You can go through every bit of my house. There is nothing without access to you. I guarantee you there's not a soul in here that would do that. I guarantee you would say, you know what, that's my privacy. They don't have a right. It's bad enough when we go on a flight and they open up our luggage and they search our bags, right? And some people say, well, my privacy, my privacy, nobody needs to be. Could you imagine if you said to God, I want you to search out every crevice, every depth of my heart. I want you to search it out. I want you to find every unclean thing. I want you to reveal it to me so that I can repent of it, turn from it, and get my life right with you. What a difference that would make. I wonder if we could repent like David in Psalm 51. How beautiful a psalm this is. In verse 1 he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil. In thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and my sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a strike spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Man, could you imagine if we repented like that. If we just allowed God to dig in deep, to clean everything up, to really take hold of us. In 2 Corinthians, there's a passage there that teaches us what true repentance really looks like. 2 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 9, he says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. Now there's the key because it's so easy to be made sorry. It's so easy to just say the word sorry without really meaning it. But he says, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, here it is, this self-same thing. That you sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things, you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Listen to what he said. What carefulness. In other words, you were careful to search out your heart, to make sure you repented of everything that God brought up to you. It says, what clearing of yourselves, the desire to make certain that our names are clear in the presence of God, that we have gotten everything out, that we have cleared it completely from our lives. What indignation that we become angry over our sins, that we become angry that we failed yet again. What fear that we recognize that there can be consequences because of our sin and that God has every right to do those consequences to us. What, what vehement desire that are desirous to make certain that we are completely right with God. What zeal. When I think of zeal, I think about that guy 
that he saw sin in the camp and he ran in with a spear and he jammed it through those two people. Why? Because he wanted to make certain that God's glory was kept up. And yea, what revenge. Man, that we just make certain that we've been vindicated, that we're right before God. Oftentimes when it comes to repentance, we spend more time making excuses for why we failed. I've been guilty of that myself at times. God, it's not my fault I said that. They shouldn't have said that to me. Man, God doesn't want your excuses. They're they're not going to pass for anything. Could you imagine if Jesus tried to use those excuses when people were degrading him and tearing him down? He didn't retort back. Instead, Instead, it says he went as a lamb to the slaughter. He was silent. Repentance has got to be genuine. It's got to be real. Think about a passage in Luke 18. A Pharisee and a tax collector praying, and the Pharisee's like, I'm so glad I'm not like this, like extortioners. I'm not like this tax collector. And God, you're so lucky to have me. I tithe and I do this and I do that. And he starts building himself up in the eyes of God, or at least trying to. And the tax collector says he fell down on his face and he beat his breast and he said, Woe is a sinner. And Jesus said, That guy, that guy went home justified. I think of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 when he came down from that sycamore tree and he wanted to make certain that things were right in his relationship with God. And he said, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor and if I've taken anything away from people unjustly, I'll give them that back times four. He wanted his actions to show that he truly was repentant, that he was broken. The great thing is if we are truly repentant, If we're truly broken over our sin, 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But the great thing is in verse 6, it said one of the seraphim flew and grabbed a live coal in his hands and touched his lips. And he says, Thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. Boy, could we use that today where God purges away our iniquities. We need to be focused upward on God's holiness. We need to be focused inward on our unholiness. And we need to be focused outward. Look at verse 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Send me. If we understand God's holiness and we willingly repent of our unholiness, we will have an outward focus on the world. You see, God's message is not just for those in the church. God's message is for every last person in this world. His desire is for all men to be saved. So when we look at this passage, we understand that God's desire was for Isaiah to, once he is cleansed, to go forth and to make a difference. Now, it's important that he be cleansed. Why? Because if we go out in our dirty, filthy, nasty old cells and try to tell people about God, we can actually do more pushing people away from God than we can drawing them toward him. If we don't recognize that we've got to get our lives right now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that we're never going to sin. It doesn't mean that we're never going to fall short. But that we're willing that even when we fail and when we fall short, that we even repent even before them and make certain they understand we know who we are in Christ Jesus. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? We need to understand that God has a plan. 
And God's plan is to use each and every one of us to make a difference. In Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, it says, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Isn't it amazing that God's commission is always for us to go? Now, it'd be easy for us to just simply sit in church and, and be church here. It's real simple for us to just stay right here in this building and this be the most of Christianity that we ever have in our lives. That Christianity does not absorb us in any other way, in any other place. But that's not what Christ called us to be. In every instance, we're called to go. In Isaiah, he said, who shall go for us? Here in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go ye therefore. In other words, we are called to go. We are called to make a difference. In fact, Jesus said in Acts 1.8, but when the Holy Ghost would come upon them, they would receive power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other parts of the world. Again, a commission to go. In fact, in Romans 10, he says, how beautiful are the feet of him who take the good news. Why would we be focused outward? Well, it's very simple. God doesn't want us to be a country club. He wants us to be a church. God doesn't want us to just have gatherings. And let's just be honest, man. With the way things have changed now and the way we are having to do everything social media, you have to be intentional about wanting to go to church now, don't you? You have to be intentional about pulling up your computer or putting it on the television screen or looking at it on your phone. You have to be intentional because it can be real simple. You can say, well, I'll get to it later. It's not that big a deal. The great thing is, is we can take church wherever we go now. We can take it when we're at the lake. We can take it when we're out there. We're in our homes. We can take it when we're at our jobs. We can take it wherever we're at. But here's the truth. It's not only about taking church there. It's about taking the message of Christ where God has placed you. I know we're supposed to be doing social distancing, but it was so cool listening to the guys that were praying this morning. And one of them said, he went to the hardware store and he saw a young man there who was talking to an employee. And he was sharing the gospel with a guy right there in a hardware store. Just this week. That's exactly what we're called to do. Who knows, you can go over to your neighbor's house and they might have a need. And you might be able to tell them about Jesus. Because they're going to ask you, why are you doing this? And you can simply say, because God did so much more for me, and now here I want to be a part of your life and help you. Man, there's so many ways that the gospel can be shared during this difficult time. Because to be honest with you, people are more open to hear what God is going to do. They're more open to have hope and faith and believe that God is ready to do something. But we have to have the right outward focus. Let's be honest. It's easy to focus inward. It's easy to sit back and say, oh, woe is me. Do you not realize what I'm going through? You don't, you don't realize, Brother John... All the problems that we're having. No, I, I understand. And guess what? The world is watching you in the midst of these problems. They want to see how are you going to react. Are you really worried about this virus? Are you really worried about the economy and the things that are going on? Or do you believe that your God is still seated on the throne? Do you believe that God is going to take care of you even in the midst of this chaos? Do you believe that God is going to do something great even in the midst of these difficult times? Do you believe that God is still in control? Because the world wants to see this in you whether you believe it or not. They want to know if you trust him or not. They want to know if it's real or not. And I'm telling you during these trying times, they'll know. They'll see it in your life. They'll see it in the way you worry. They'll see it in the way you talk. They will see it in the way you live. 
And even in the midst of this, instead of focusing inward, other than looking at our sinfulness, we need to be focusing outward as to how we can get the message of Christ out to go further and do more for the kingdom of God. The question is, how is your vision? Can you see it? Can you see it? Can you see God at work? Can you see that God is going to do something great through this? Can you see if God is going to change this world? Can you see if God is, let's just be honest, many people have said, man, we know America is in deep, deep trouble. I mean, it doesn't take long. I mean, just, just listen to the media. I mean, it's scary what the media is trying to put out there. But we're not going to be in fear. We're not going to worry about what the fake media is out there putting, are we? Because that's exactly what it is. They want us to be scared. They want us to be fearful. They want to see the economy destroyed. They want to see a president torn down. They want to see all these things going on. They want to see us living in fear. But as Christians, we got to rise up. We've got to believe that our God is on the throne. We've got to believe that God is going to take care of this situation. And they need to see it in us. Can you see it? Can you see that God is going to bring us through this? Can you see that God can change this nation? Can you see that God can drive us to our knees? Can you see what God is going to do? I hope so. Because that and that alone right now is the only hope we have. That and that right now is all we have to hold on to. And to look forward to is that our God is going to bring us through this. We have to believe it. And we have to see it. How's your vision? 